If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this October 8th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This being hour number two is traditionally the hour where we have a special guest, and this week is no exception. Looking very much forward to speaking with Charlie Sykes. He's a longtime former radio talk show host in Wisconsin who has just written a book called How the Right Lost Its Mind, a book which uh, I know has to be really good because I'm quoted in it. And here he is now, Charlie Sykes, author of the book How the Right Lost Its Mind. Welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks. So, uh, Charlie, you, you and I have uh, talked uh, before. We've interviewed you before about this very topic. But now this week you have this book uh, that officially came out. Uh, the, the book obviously says a lot in its title. Why don't you give us the, the short uh, version of, of why you wrote this? <laughs> well, I actually wrote it because I was trying to figure out what the heck just happened to us. Uh, how, did, how, did, how did we go from William F. Buckley Jr. to Sean Hannity? How did we go from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump? Um, how did a Republican Party and a conservative movement that actually seem to stand for something. How was how it so easily uh, rolled over by someone like Donald Trump? And, and how did we replace all the, the values we claim to uh, believe in with this sort of toxic stew of nationalism and nativism and populism and, uh, and the cult of personality represented by Donald Trump? And what did you come up with? Well, that's, that's, that's of course, the, the hard part. I mean, I, I started off asking the question, so was this a black swan event? Did, did, was this a hostile takeover of an otherwise healthy movement, or was the dysfunction pre-existing? And I, I, I started off thinking that it was probably a hostile takeover. Um, by the end of writing the book, I have to admit that I think there's no question about it, that there was something deeply wrong broken in the conservative movement even before Donald Trump came down that escalator. I agree 100%, uh, but I'm curious as to how you came to that conclusion. Well, I think sort of going back and reverse engineering what, what happened. Um, how how, did, how uh, did Donald Trump rise out of that uh, pack of candidates? You know, and I think, you know, as, as you look back, you realize that 
that, you know, for years the Republican Party um, had outsourced its thought leadership to the loudmouth drunk at the end of the bar, that um, it had created this perpetual outrage machine that knew what it was against, but not necessarily what it was for. And the reality is, is that in, in you know long before this this year, there were a lot of um, uh, strange eccentric candidates that had risen to the uh, risen to the top, had won primaries, had led the polls at various times, and and I think that that uh, that in retrospect, they, the the conservative movement probably looked a lot more coherent than it was. Uh, I think there was a unity during the Obama years uh, in opposition to what was going on, but it it basically. It, it, you know, that 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 uh, that oppositional uh, stance, I, I, I think, masked you know the deeper divisions, including the return of the crackpots, the sort of fundamental structural dishonesty of much of the conservative media that you have written and talked about so eloquently, all of which was exposed in the campaign. You know, I. Um agree with your your analysis that this was a situation where we were fundamentally broken, largely because I started to suspect this uh, many years ago. And, and I'm curious, you know, since we, we come from somewhat similar backgrounds and talk radio, um, whether or not you now look back and you go, well, gee, why didn't I see this sooner? I mean, do, do you feel that way now? Absolutely, yes. There's no question about it. And, and, and admit that quite openly. Um, and, and that, that's another one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was to ask, uh, you know, what was it that I missed? I mean, I actually really did think I had a pretty good idea of what the conservative movement was, who our allies were, and what we stood for. And um, I found out uh, last year that, uh, that, I didn't, that I didn't really fully understand who we were and what we were all about. Um, and, and I do think that that's one thing that a lot of conservatives realize, is things that we ignored or, or things that we thought were under control. You know, I mean, I... I always knew there were the crackpots out there. I always knew that there were the fringe characters, but I always believed the center would hold. I always believed that we would ultimately do the the rational, reasonable principles thing, which is um, obviously, in retrospect, highly naive. Well, there, there are two, at least two, uh, elements of this that you've already referred to. There, there's the audience, and then there's you know the the lead actors, the the media and political uh, forces that, that placate or, or pander to the, the audience. Let's talk about the audience first, all right? The, I, um, for a long time, uh, was delusional myself because, um, you know, I, uh, I certainly understood that a lot of my callers were a little bit off. Uh, I certainly knew that when I went to public events, there seemed to be a lot of strange people uh, that that attended them. Uh, it certainly was clear to me because I, I actually uh, knew uh, George Nori, uh, who does you know did the Art Bell show, took over for Art Bell, the overnight nut job uh, conspiracy show that's on almost every single major radio station in the country. Uh, so I, I knew that clearly talk radio uh, pandered a lot to the conspiracy crazies out there. Uh, but I, I deluded myself for a while into believing. You know what? That's just the vocal fringe that the the uh, the median uh, person in the audience is is not nuts. Uh, we're just not hearing as much from them. 
I now believe that the the majority, and I don't know what the percentage is, maybe you have an idea. I believe that the majority of the talk radio audience, for instance, uh, are are people who are, in fact, certifiably nuts. Uh, <laughs> d- do you agree with that? <laughs> you and I should go into therapy together. Um, I don't know that I would say a majority. Now, I, I, I think, just to step back, I mean, understand that, you know, I was in, you know, in, in, in Wisconsin, and we may have been a little bit of an outlier. I think talk radio here might have been uh, somewhat different than talk radio around the country. In fact, a lot of people told me during the campaign that, that I didn't fully understand talk radio because Wisconsin was so different. And, and of course, that's what happened. You know, Donald Trump came into Wisconsin, and he was beaten badly here because the talk radio, and I was not the only one, there were six of us, and we were all anti-Trump. And it's kind of a laboratory of what would have happened, you know, had talk radio not rolled over for Donald Trump. Could he have been stopped? Well, yeah, we stopped him in Wisconsin. So, but yes, I had a roughly, and also the experience in Wisconsin was the, the, the people that, that, that we saw rise to power were not crazy. They were very mainstream. They were, they were solid conservatives, or at least I, you know, I imagine they were. I mean, this is a state that gets, you know, Scott Walker and Paul Ryan and Ron Johnson uh, Ryan's previous before he he, he uh, decided to become a, a, a Trumpist. So we we I think were kind of a model of of non crazy town conservatism, mm-hmm. which did shape my view, and which made for me I think the shock of watching what was happening around the country all that more um, you know biting. I agree with you that Wisconsin probably gave you a, a jaundiced view because yeah. my sense is that people in Wisconsin are not as, as nutty as, as some other uh, areas of the country. But, well, I mean, let's take a look at the reaction to Las Vegas. Uh, I mean, the, the conspiracy nuts are everywhere. And there seems to be a correlation between those who are conspiracy nuts and people who are uh, Donald Trump fanatics and, and talk radio listeners. And, and so, I mean, wh- wh- where am I wrong in that analysis? Um, well, actually... Um as, as you know, um, I actually cite you at a key point in the, in the book on this exact subject. Um, I do. I, I went back and I tried to figure out these, these key moments in in the, in, the, in the in how the right lost its mind. And one of those moments, um, I think, was when the Drudge Report began linking to Alex Jones and some of these other conspiracy paranoid uh, websites. Mm-hmm. Because what what Drudge did, and I, and I quote you in the book, uh, and I think this was a very important. Um, insight that you had that the that, that drudge really was the assignment editor for much of the conservative media. So once he brought these fever swamp conspiracy theorists, you know, once he began linking to them, he brought them into the mainstream of the conservative movement. And, and, that, and that filtered throughout the, the, uh, the ecosystem that we had created. And I think that we're really reaping that right now, because there was a time not that long ago when the conservative movement, and I think, had had marginalized that paranoid conservative wing of the party, but Drudge, because he was so influential, I think had a very a significant impact. But but there's no question about it that that at some point, the right lost its immunity to nutty stuff. That we had created this alternative reality silo, and so that when the conspiracy theories, when the really when the, when the crackpots began to pop up. Instead of recognizing uh, them um, as as crackpots and as nutjobs, too many conservatives went along with it. And when people like me and you stood up and said, "You understand, you know that these are these are the reports from Crazy Town," 
um, we were the ones who were uh, who were uh, excommunicated and told we were out of step. That's a really important point for people to understand. Uh, as far as Alex Jones is concerned, first of all, Andrew Breitbart, when he was working for Drudge, would never have dreamed of linking to anything uh, that Alex Jones or Infowars or anything like that uh, had ever done. But I, I right. believe that, that Jones is a, a symptom of the right. problem more than a cause of it. I and mean, he would not exist if there was not a significant number of people who, who were thirsting for that. And now that he's been given credibility by people like Matt Drudge, now there's no stopping it uh, because this is what a lot of people want to believe. I mean, this is why majorities uh, you know, believe in a massive JFK assassination conspiracy, uh, believe that Elvis is still alive. Uh, you know, we've got uh, 9-11 crackpots uh, at a ridiculous percentage. I mean, this, this, this is a reality. And it's not just within well, conservatism, but unfortunately, Trump, I think Trump uh, understood this because he's a, conser- a conspiracy guy himself. Oh, he uh, is. Uh, he is. And that's one of the most alarming things. Well, you know, we, you start off by asking what, what had... Uh, we uh, what did we miss? Uh, you know, uh, during the course of writing this book, I went back and, and reread in some detail Richard Hofstadter's S four, where he wrote about the paranoid tradition in American politics, and he described you know some of the things that were primarily going on along the right wing um, back in the 1960s. And you read that today, that paranoid uh, that uh, sort of you know uh, subculture. Among in the conservative movement, you read that today and you realize that you're you're right, uh, John. Um, th- this has been around for a long time. There's always that desire for the secret knowledge. If you believe that the the mainstream media is constantly lying to you, that the elites are trying to hide something for you, there is uh, there's an appetite for the person who will say, "Well, here's the real story," and that's been around a long time. I think we had kept a lid on it until recently, and then you, you found people who were able to exploit it, and, and now it's really really kind of a cancer in the conservative movement, intellectually and, uh, and in the media. Charlie, I'm curious where you come down on uh, how Trump cracked this code uh, of uh, the conservative base, because I don't, I don't consider Trump to be an imbecile, uh, and I think he has amazing instincts in some ways, in all to benefit himself. Uh, but I don't think he's that smart, and he certainly has no history up until the last couple of years of having you know, lived and breathed the, the conservative movement to, to where he would have understood the vulnerabilities within the conservative audience, the conservative base, the conservative media, and yet he figured, whether by accident or by design, the whole birtherism thing, you know, followed by, you know, his ridiculous rhetoric on the wall and what have you, he figured this out uh, and, and was able to, you know, use it to his advantage in obviously spectacular ways. What's your theory on how he was able to do that? That, by the way, is an interesting question, John. <laughs> it really is. And uh, I don't have a definitive answer, but, but uh, in, and, and this, is, this is kind of surprising. <laughs> I've gotten, gotten a little bit of blowback on this. Um, because I, I think one of the guys that, that has a the theory that I'm willing to accept is, is a former Obama speechwriter named John Favreau, who said, wrote a piece something like, you know, um, you know first-time caller, first-time candidate or something, said that if you want to understand Donald Trump, realize that his candidacy is modeled on so many of the conservative talk shows that you were talking about earlier. 
that so many of the themes of the way he talks and the issues he, he emphasizes are the kinds that were really staples of conservative talk radio, um, of which you and I were both part, but which I don't think we were part of that. But if you go back a few years into some of the um, into, into some of these shows, you know they, they weren't deep discussions of conservative principles uh, or the balanced budget. They were these. Um, these sort of these you know, da- dazzling little conspiracy theories uh, or attacks on, on, on liberals or um, you know, seizing upon uh, symbols of, of the culture wars. And in a lot of ways, I think that Favreau's analysis is, is on, that, that, that he, is, he really almost modeled him on a, more, on a somewhat reckless conservative radio talk show host. What do you think? Um, I think that's interesting. Um, you know, I still don't know where he picked up that those sensibilities because he didn't live no, that that life. Um, so how did he know? I mean, it's a, it, 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 it's a great question because I mean he was doing that before Steve before he hooked up with Steve Bannon. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know what it makes me. It, you know what my, my answer, my off the yeah. off the cuff answer is. I no, think I think that Trump might just be one of these crackpots that he's not making it up. He's not. He's just living his own normal life, and then he just it happens to come naturally to him because he's nuts. I mean, well, I, I don't. I don't disagree with that. I was. I was going to say. I. I, I tend to uh, avoid um, these analyses that imply there's some you know deep eighth dimensional chess involved here. There's a sort right. of being their quality of Donald Trump, where he sort of stumbles on it. I mean, nobody could have anticipated that he'd be able to, you know, launch himself the way he something. I mean, that was that was perhaps you know an, a sort of an easy thing that 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 dovetailed with with his own prejudices, his own you know understanding of the world, um, his own sense of self marketing. But there's a certain accidental quality to this. I mean, not even Donald Trump could have known that that the you know, telling people that I'm going to build a big, beautiful wall and have Mexico pay for it would be the defining moment of his campaign. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's talk. Dan Coulter would have known. But, yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk, Charlie, about uh, the media personalities who either drove this and or took advantage of these realities and vulnerabilities within the conservative base. By the way, wh- where do you stand on that basic issue? Did did the conservative media industrial complex Follow the audience or drive the audience in this direction? A little bit of both. Um, I think there was an awful lot of following, and I think you still see that today. Um, but, um, and I think it was also you who made this, this point, that you know, the most vulnerable part of Donald Trump's campaign was on launch, like a rocket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, had the, you know, had the Limbaugh's of the world, had they shut it down then, said this guy's a fraud, he's a phony, he's a rhino, um, I don't think that he could have gotten lift off. Correct. But, um, so there was, a, there was a certain amount of, you know, opening the door to him. But uh, also, and, you know, you and I were both on the air, we, we know the pressure uh, to, to go along with, uh, with, with, with Trumpism during this campaign. And I think that, that Limbaugh in particular, Rush Limbaugh in particular, um, I have a, a sense was following the audience that, that Limbaugh, whose own career has uh, you know taken so many hits, um, just could not afford to get to lose portions of his audience or mm-hmm. to be flanked on on the quote unquote Trumpian right. I was going to say right, but I don't think right. he is actually on the right. Uh, the, the, the Trumpian right, the, the populist right, um, 
And so the, he, he was. Uh, he, he, I start my chapter on Limbaugh with a quote of the guy who said, "Those are my people. I have to catch up with them because I am their leader." So I do think there was a certain amount of uh, following the audience. So you don't believe that that Limbaugh really believes that Trump was good for conservatism or the country, do you? I think that Limbaugh's approach was incredibly cynical. I think that he played games with it. I, I think that he was. He was uh, he was uh, trying trying to spin the fact that he was enabling him. He understood apparently that Donald Trump was not a conservative. I don't know whether or not Limbaugh had an agenda other than not to get out of uh, step with with his audience about that. Uh, but but based on things he said, um, I don't I don't I don't don't really know. I really don't know. My theory uh, on Limbaugh and people like him is that. Uh, during a slow period of time, it was fun and lucrative to play yes. with fire. Uh, yes. And they never thought that the fire would get totally out of control. And then once it did out, get out of control, they're in complete cover their ass and rationalization mode that, hey, look, this is a beautiful fire. It's awesome that this fire got out of control. When in reality, they know deep down it's a fire and that some damage is going to happen. What do you make no, of that? I- I no, I, I I really do believe that. I I don't know what what they thought the end game was going to be that they were going to take out Jeb Bush and that would open the door for a Ted Cruz or a Scott Walker or an actual con- real conservative. Um, but then things did get out of control. Um, what what is amazing to me, and, and 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 I know that you've written about this. If we were having this discussion two years ago, and the discussion was is talk radio primarily a business or is it a cause? Is it is it entertainment or is it substance? I would have pushed back and said, you know, we we really do believe these things. We do, you know, sincerely, um, you know, advocate for positions we believe in. I would have said that, but now I think it is so evident um, to the degree to which you need to understand that that uh, the conservative media is a business, and right now, the business model, clicks, rating, everything. Um, is, is, is driven by the need to um, uh, basically suck up to and rationalize and, and support and defend Trump. Well, I, back in 2011, I put out a uh, book proposal, which did not get picked up largely because I'm not a celebrity and I was probably too ahead of my time. But the actual title of the book was A Business, Not a Cause. And yeah. it, was, it was based in, in my own experience, not just as a talk show host, but also having uh, dealt with a lot of these conservative media stars who are supposedly heroes, you know, to this conservative movement, who I knew in my own experience didn't give a damn about the cause and that were only concerned with their own celebrity, their own stature, their own bottom line, their ratings, and that if when truly tested, uh, I knew that they would fail that test. In fact, you know, I, I will always, I will go to my death, Charlie, uh, believing, uh, with I think a lot of evidence to back me up, that most of the conservative media was actually thrilled that Barack Obama got elected not once but twice because he was great for them. And that, uh, you know, you're from Wisconsin, uh, a Scott Walker presidency would have been death. To the conservative media, literally, literally, it would have ended the conservative media because Scott, who I think is tremendous in a lot of ways, not charismatic, you know, not a ratings grabber. Uh, there would have been no boogeyman if you have a Republican Senate and a House and a, and a Scott Walker or even a Marco Rubio as president. 
what happens to the conservative media then, Charlie? Yeah, it's not it's it's, it's not fun, and, and and this is what. The well, way forget it, about not being yeah. fun. It's not viable because well, the, it's, yeah, I mean it's 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 an entire genre and a business model based on being in opposition and you know ginning up this outrage. So yes, obviously, it's it's going to be more successful in opposition, um, and obviously uh, you were way ahead of the curve. You were way ahead of the curve, and I was somewhat naive, and I I was you know in 2011. You know this was. Here in Wisconsin, we're in the midst of the Walker recall. We're fighting off the left. We're right. beating them back and everything. Um, you know, and I felt we were part of this uh, very idealistic crusade um, and would have resented very much the suggestion that we were a business. But obviously, in retrospect, you were way ahead of that curve. Was there anybody who surprised you most within the, the conservative media leaders with regard to their sellout? Oh, Wow. There's so much. It's just, it was this rolling disillusionment uh, for me all, all, you know, for for free for a year and a half. I mean, it really was. And you know, I, I borrowed that phrase from Jonah Goldberg that it was like the invasion of the body snatchers. Um, I will tell you who you know who shocked me the least: um, Sean Hannity. Who you know, for, you know for, frankly, I don't spend a lot of my time in the book talking about Sean Hannity because I think he's dumb as a box of rocks, and therefore I didn't expect much more of him. But, you know, I suppose, you know, there were a lot of people that shocked me. A lot of the, you know, I'll be, I mean, you know, I hate to, you know, pick more fights than I already have, but I, I, was, I was pretty amazed watching guys like Bill Bennett. I was amazed watching um, Dennis Prager. I've, I've been amazed watching some of the, uh, the intellectuals that I actually believed uh, knew better decide that they were going to uh, start appeasing uh, Trump. Um, I think Fox. Uh, you know, initially tried to put up a little bit of resistance, but their cave-in has been incredible. I guess if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, you know, what side of this Tucker Carlson fall on, I, I could never have predicted um, the degree to which he would become a he'd become an enabler and a um, um, a defender. I could have. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I know Tucker not, a little bit. I've worked, I've worked for Tucker, and I've I have some text messages from Tucker that are pretty interesting. Uh, going back to 2012 about the what I perceived as as the you know people forget. See the the 2012 uh, Republican primary situation was really the prelude to 2016. People forget how how close. Romney came to not winning that, and how and all the cra- and all the crazy and all the crazies that 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 rose up. Right. I mean, you you all of those were like proto pre Trumpian. Yeah. That would be you know Kane and uh, yep. uh, and you know we had a bunch of them, and but but I mean even the idea that Newt Gingrich was at one yep. point the front runner was insane, especially when you had a Mitt Romney there as you know we we, we couldn't have. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it would have been hard-pressed to create a better candidate for the situation than, than Mitt Romney, and, but and in, we but didn't want him. But, but in 2012, we didn't lose our minds. We, we actually... At, but we came close, too. See, see yeah, we, right. we came close enough to where I realized, you know what? Uh, we're very close to the, the, you know, everything breaking apart here. That, that we're gonna yeah. we're gonna leave the gravitational pull of the the rational <laughs> Earth uh, if 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 the right circumstances occurred. And obviously, you know, it was the perfect storm with Trump. Um, one of the things, Charlie, that bothers me most about the media, the conservative media, sell out to Trump, which I believe is all about ratings, revenue, in an era mm-hmm. of a broken business model. 
By the way, do you talk much in the book about the broken business model of the conservative media? Because that, to me, is a key element of this. I talk some um, about it. You know, the fact that, that this is a it is a, a a shrinking it's a shrinking market, and the pressure um, to to you know to compete for that shrinking model, I think, drives people you know to become more bombastic. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, you know, I mean, more bombastic and more extreme in order in order to fight for that uh, smaller and smaller slice of the audience. Yeah, I mean, people are under far more pressure and and far less likely to take a risk to offend the audience. See, see to me, Charlie, and this maybe gets down to the, the, the brass tacks of this whole deal. To me, the, the idea of truth and the idea of getting and maintaining an audience to love you, which is what talk show hosts need to do, those are two completely incompatible goals, are they not? Because, because inherently, if your goal is to tell the truth, you are going to piss some people off. And if you piss enough people off over a long enough period of time, they're not going to want to listen to you, especially when there's lots of other options to get something that makes them feel good. They, I mean, so if you're offering broccoli and the competitor is offering cotton candy, guess what's going to happen? Over time, you're screwed. Right. I mean, well, that 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 is exactly right. I, uh, for for a very long time, though, did think they were compatible, and I thought that I had a strong enough bond and trust with the audience that I could give them the broccoli once in a while. But that was one of the big uh, switches in in 2016, and one of the things that I I realized was that you know we conservatives have mocked the left, I think, legitimately. For um, the you know safe spaces on university campuses, but the conserv- a lot of the conservative audience really came to think of conservative talk radio and conservative media as their safe space, where they were not going to be confronted with um, inconvenient truths, where they weren't um, going to have to eat the broccoli. And anybody that fed them the broccoli, anybody that told them things that that were um, disturbing um, or were you know off message. Um, got a huge amount of pushback. And then I think that this is one of the reasons why you watch one talk show after another sort of roll over and decide to modify, because there are people who believe, and obviously a huge portion of the audience, I would say an overwhelming majority of the audience, um, believes that the role of conservative media is to reinforce what they already believe, to give them ammunition, to protect them from things that they might learn that would be disturbing or that would be that would that would break with with the narrative. So yeah, that's that's how um, the conservative media became a safe space for crackpots and for Donald Trump. I like that analysis. Okay, back to the the previous question that I uh, aborted mm-hmm. in the middle of with regard to one of the things that bothers me most is not just the support for Trump. I can I can rationalize that in some ways because we're you know we're trying to prevent the wicked witch from the West to Hillary right. from being president and all that, but the level of hypocrisy in, in our reaction when I say our I mean the conservative media's reaction to certain situations is just so staggering. I mean on a on a weekly if not daily basis things happen that that are facilitated by Trump, that if Obama did anything close to, we, our side would be lighting ourselves on fire. I mean, on a, on a, on a 24-7 basis. Like, for instance, if, if Barack Obama had arbitrarily said at a public event that uh, this is the calm before the storm and then told the media, you'll find out what I mean later, 
What would be the level on a scale of one to a hundred of the conservative media conniption, Charlie? Oh, well, I mean, it would be, be off the charts and it would be for weeks. And, and as you point out, there's one of those every day, you know, whether it's the expensive flights, you know, by the cabinet members or the amount of time spent. I mean, you and I probably both remember, you know, the, the theme of, you know, Barack Obama spends too much time golfing. Yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. ironic. Remember now. that? Or, yeah. Or, 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 or if Obama had, uh, you know, spent all of the, the money and the time, of, you know, vacationing at his own property, all of that stuff. You know, not to mention, I mean, I you know some of the stuff is really painful because, I mean, I remember the fight against Obamacare and how they were, which I still think is a disaster, but, you know, how the Democrats were ramming it through and how difficult it was and everything, I mean, and how you know quick it was. Well, compared to what Republicans <laughs> tried to do, it's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Um, didn't we, like, say it was a bad thing to legislate without public hearings, without knowing what was in the bill? And this happens on, a, on an almost daily basis. I mean, yeah. I... I I tweeted out yesterday, and by the way, I'm being beaten up by both the left and the right for tweeting out that with these, you know, Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. uh, the story, the Harvey Weinstein story, and the anniversary of Access Hollywood, it was it was almost like there was an Olympics of hypocrisy. Right. Who was going to be more hypocritical here? But we really reached a state where, uh, John, there there are no more fixed standards. You know, we on the right, we we not we. I mean, the right has embraced moral relativism, cultural relativism, yep. and things they would have been outraged about. And, and in the future, the in the future, Charlie, Mike, and, and this has been my my mantra from day one on Trump, is that if we support this guy, we lose the right and the ability to criticize anything with credibility in the future. Yeah, anything. Well, and you know, think of think about the damage to the culture. I mean, leave aside. Mm-hmm. The policies and the politics, the, the damage to and the damage to the conservative movement, but also to the culture itself, um, is going to be very hard to fix. I mean, you know what we've accepted in terms of serial lying, what we've accepted in terms of corruption, and you're absolutely right. You know, 20 years ago, Democrats looked the other way um, when Bill Clinton was engaging in his conduct and was perjuring himself. They thought that was okay. Well, you know what? I mean, that came back to bite them back in 2016 with the, you know, the, you know, no matter how bad Donald Trump is, what about? You know, what about isn't? And you're absolutely right. With, you know, for the next 20 years, you know, I mean, are we going to be able to criticize, you know, be really outraged when, when Democrats once again lie or ram something through? or Not with credibility. Corruption? Not with any credibility, that's for sure. Um, and, and we're going to get so little out of this. That's the other thing. I mean, this this deal that we've made with the devil, uh, we're going to get, you know, butt Gorsuch. I, I don't know what yep. the heck we're getting out of this. Uh, a couple more questions for you, Charlie, in our, in our sure. time here. I'm curious, um, as a longtime radio show, talk show host uh, myself, uh, along with the same similar to you, although in different markets, do you miss it? Do you do you miss being a daily uh, radio talk show host? No. There has not been. I, I mean, this is a really honest question. Really honest answer to you. Um, my last day was December nineteenth. Uh, immediately began writing this book, and I will tell you, there has not been a single day when I wanted to be strapped to the mast and sit there for three and a half hours and, and talk about this um, in the environment we live in now. I, and, and I'll be honest with you, um, I find it incredibly liberating, both from a, a daily schedule, but also not being part of the tribe, not not having to, you know, take take a certain line or or, or live within that particular environment. And and I know that, that may sound 
strange, but I had done it for 23 years. I think I had done it enough. I did not leave because of Donald Trump, but uh, the, the timing felt like it was it was right. I hear you. I feel like I got out of the mafia. <laughs> I mean, do you feel a certain lightness of being, a certain yeah, liberation I, now? I, I just, I mean, and, and by the way, when I was doing it full time, I don't think it was as bad as it is now because that was before Trump. But right. uh, although I was doing a, you know, a, a syndicated uh, Sunday night show, which I got out of because of Trump's election, because there was no point to it at, after that point. But the, the reality, well, the reality is that uh, it's a, it's a very it's a it's a dirty, dirty, dirty business getting worse every day because of that broken business model that I referred to. You have to whore yourself out more and more every day in order to make ends meet, and I, that's just not in my DNA. Well, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it never got that way for me. I, I had many, many years that I enjoyed, and I'm I'm still very proud of, and I worked for, for a station where I, I had none of those pressures. But but I, I I just think the political environment and the media environment is now so toxic. Uh, right. So I I like right. what I'm doing now a lot more. Uh, two two other questions that don't necessarily deal directly sure. with uh, your book, uh, how the right lost its mind, although somewhat related. Uh, obviously, as a guy who's uh, been in Wisconsin, I, I assume all your life, right? You you grew up there, and or I know you worked a long, there. A, a long time. I was okay. actually born in Seattle, Washington. Grew okay. up in uh, New York, and ended up here. Okay, so you've been in Wisconsin for a long time. Long time. And uh, we're doing this interview before the big Packer game this afternoon. Yep. Um, so, uh, but uh, I wrote a column this week about the most recent revelations about Facebook mm-hmm. and Russia and the potential impact uh, of them targeting Wisconsin, as, along with Michigan. And I don't know if you saw it, but I, I think I made a pretty compelling uh, case that, um, to use the football analogy, that while there's always a lot of reasons why an unusual upset might have happened, that Russia effectively uh, kicked the game-winning field goal uh, for Trump in Wisconsin because when you look at the numbers, uh, Hillary's vote was so depressed in comparison mm-hmm. to what it should have been historically. Something weird happened, and the margin was so small. What, what do you make of that theory? Well, I, I don't know the answer to it, but I, I will tell you that, that, that um, I was very surprised by the result here. I think I understood Wisconsin politics. I had run the numbers. Um, I, had, I had a real sense of where the votes were going to come from. And you're correct that that the big variable was the Democrats that did not turn out for Hillary Clinton. Now, I sense that there was something wrong. I mean, the, the, the night the night of the election, I can't make sense of this. This, this doesn't make does not finding out so much now after the fact about what happened, about the information, about the flooding of information, all of that. Um, we just don't know. But I will tell you that um, as somebody that you know, you know, I had thought that I understood the Wisconsin electorate. Um, that was a very humbling experience for me. Well, let's let's be clear about this. This wasn't just a surprise. I, when, when, when you look at the final polls in Wisconsin, yeah. there is no chance, none, right? You, you, I'm sure you woke up on Election Day almost a year ago not thinking there was any chance that Trump was going to win that state, correct? Correct. Okay, and and let's be also clear that when you look at the historical patterns here, Hillary's lead in Wisconsin, which you know she gets criticized for, oh, she never visited Wisconsin. She would have been mocked had she visited Wisconsin with other states in play in those final days, based upon where the polls were. Obama 
was was not as was not in as good a position in 2012 and ended up crushing Romney in Wisconsin. So something very strange happened, and it was all about her voters not turning out. And when you look at what the Russian strategy was, that's what it was to depress well, her vote. Yeah. Well, the the big turnout now we you know, in Wisconsin there are two centers of Democratic votes: uh, Dane County, which is uh, the liberal Madison area. They actually increased their vote. Milwaukee's the other one, and the African-American vote just did not turn out. So, I mean, the alternative right. theory, of course, is that black voters just did not turn out for a sure. 70-year-old white woman who did not bother to visit, I mean, which is not implausible. But there's not a quarter but, of a million of those, Charlie. Well, they're, 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 right. <laughs> and, the other, and, the other, and the other thing was that the reason I was reasonably confident that uh, – I was actually not reasonable. I was quite confident that uh, um, Trump was not going to win Wisconsin was – that, that we still had southeastern Wisconsin, um, which is a, a vote-rich area, where he was going to underperform Mitt Romney substantially in, among the Republican base, which he did. I didn't think there was any way that he would be able to underperform Romney's total and then somehow manage to win the state. And again, the, the story is largely uh, Milwaukee County Democratic voters who did not turn out. Um, he, uh, Trump won the state by about 23,000 votes. There were about Hillary got about thirty nine thousand fewer votes in Milwaukee County alone, right there. Now, did the Russian Facebook campaign successfully suppress the vote? That's a fascinating question. That's an important question. I don't know the answer. All right, last question regarding uh, Wisconsin. Of all the politicians who have sold out to Donald Trump, the one that has shocked me the most by the the level of sellout is Paul Ryan. And I'm wondering, as a guy who, uh, you know, is, lives there and knows these players, and, and I'm sure you've interviewed Paul Ryan many times, was, do you share that level of shock by uh, his reaction to Trump? Um, I would say disappointing, because I kept in touch with him throughout the campaign, and I understood the calculation that he was making. He was under no illusions, of course, about Trump, but he, but he made the calculation, look, this, I can get my agenda signed into law. I can, um, I can get tax reform, I can get Obamacare repeal, I can get a variety of other things he convinced himself with a President uh, Trump that he would not have gotten under a President Hillary. He was, of course, not expecting that Trump would actually be elected president. Remember, a year ago today, you know what happened a year ago today? Yeah, I do. I was going to ask you about this. He he disinvited Trump right. to an event and and became damn close to get tell him to get out of the race. Exactly, exactly. So Friday night, uh, you had the Access Hollywood video. That same night, the Speaker of the House basically disinvited the the you know Donald Trump from a big rally that was supposed to take place, you know, in Racine uh, a year ago today. So so at that moment. Paul Ryan was drawing a bright, what appeared to be a bright red line between himself and Trump. And now he's become very much a Trump enabler. Um, so I'm disappointed. I will tell you that I am somewhat surprised by how long it has gone on and how fulsome his praise is. I mean, there's right. been a couple of interviews. Right. In no, the he's last, not just going along with it, Charlie. He's like in the, in a, the last a cheerleader. Week. I mean, it's. Yes. There's a couple of comments. I, I think I tweeted out. Um, a couple of weeks ago, when he was, you know, talking about how, you know, how wonderful Trump was as president, something like "shoot me now," um, and I, I see that he's now giving interviews where he's talking about how really, you know, deeply compassionate Donald Trump is to the victims in Puerto Rico, and it's like, 
okay, you know, if 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 you just stuck to the your tax reform agenda, that's one thing. But but he's gone way past that. Do you have a theory on what the hell's going on with him? Well, I think that he realizes that that he needs to, like a lot of people have, if you want to manage Donald Trump, you need to keep sucking up to him. You lavish him with praise. If you criticize him, he's going to break bad on you. And I think that he feels he needs to stay as close as possible because they're afraid that Donald, that the Trump will, uh, you know, shift left, work with Chuck and Nancy, which is a very real possibility. Yeah. Um, and he, and that and that he's just he's just obsessed at this point with getting his tax reform bill through, and any fight any daylight between himself and Donald Trump right now will um, would would destroy the tax reform. That that's my that's my explanation, which may be a rationalization for this. Not to mention, there's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome <laughs> that a lot of these guys have just been beaten up. It's like ba- it's like battered politician syndrome. It's like oh my goodness, you know, we just can't. Don't don't say anything bad about him. You know, let's just keep telling him how wonderful he is. Interesting. I think you might be right. Well, Charlie, uh, great analysis. Always enjoy speaking with you. Make sure uh, everyone go gets go goes uh, get the book uh, "How the Right Lost Its Mind," and not just because I'm quoted in it. Uh, but uh, best of luck with the book, and please keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Charlie. It's Charlie Sykes, author of the book "How the Right Lost Its Mind," uh, and uh, enjoyed that conversation uh, with Charlie as we. Uh, have had him on in the past, and I think he's dead on in a lot of stuff, not just because he agrees with me, by the way. All right, uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Make sure you check out hour number one if you haven't done so already because we did a super extensive analysis of all the news of the week. As always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, Please pay attention to this important message for your own self-interest. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.